Good evening, Dr. Dan Guerra here, Authentic Biochemistry Studios. Today is the 4th of January in a brand new year, 2022. Um, I've been talking about the central nervous system and the repetitive reward pathway. We've talked about addiction. We've talked about several diseases. Um, I'm going to go and continue this. This might be the last lecture on this topic. Um, we're going to do a lot of neuroscience, I think, this year. And I'm going to do it in this episodic fashion so that I don't spend too much time on, let's say, diseases of the, the, the central nervous system or diseases of motor neurons. I'm going to go at it from the perspective, again, of looking at regulatory systems. But for right now, I just want to make sure we clear off um, what we're describing here with the central nervous system and maybe talk a little bit more about some details that were recently published in a couple of review articles and also in a mainframe uh, peer-reviewed paper. So remember that we talked about CNS and CNS has various uh, structures that have been described. And one of them is called the diencephalon. Now the diencephalon has included within it two different very significant nuclei and more. But the ones that we have um, addressed so far um, are the thalamus and the hypothalamus. So the thalamus actually does a very important chore in the CNS because it processes and then carries out a relay system for most of the signals traveling to and from the cortex. That includes the PFC and the OFC and the lower centers of that cortical region. Also, it carries out the signaling to the motor neurons, so the motor functioning is connected between the thalamus, the brainstem, and the cortex. All of this, of course, is required to maintain consciousness and therefore um, allows for higher brain functions. And this, of course, includes understanding, imagination, and uh, a necessary component is language, creativity, complex thought, and indeed also all aspects of affective neuroscience, that is emotion. Now, the hypothalamus, which is below the thalamus, right, is a regulatory center, and we talked a lot about this. Of course, it's mostly described for the autonomic nervous system. And along with the pituitary and adrenal axis, it produces, secretes, hormones systemically. It's known, of course, to regulate sleep, body temperature, appetite, uh, and therefore the reward pathway. And of course, linked to that is the sex drive. So the diencephalon is a very significant region of the human central nervous system. Now, I want to remind you something about uh, the uh, biochemical pathways that we encounter in the CNS and how this is linked to the reward pathway. We've been going back and forth with this, and I'm going to jump into it now by discussing the most significant carbohydrate used as an energy source, and that's glucose. You know that glucose is an aldose carbohydrate, and it is the major storage form of carbohydrate in mammals in the form of glycogen, which is basically a homopolymer of glucose. You also recall there are multiple metabolic pathways that describe directly from it. 
including glycolysis, which is essentially anaerobic. That doesn't that means it doesn't require molecular oxygen. Um, Glucogluconeogenesis, which is the synthesis of glucose from non-carbohydrate precursors, but also not fatty acid precursors in humans. And then there's glycogenolysis, which of course is a breakdown of that homopolymer of glucose. And that is heavily hormonally regulated. We've talked about this. Both the synthesis and the hydrolysis of glycogen is under very tight hormonal control. And of course, utilizing secondary messenger pathways like cyclic AMP, dependent protein kinases, calcium stored and transport, etc. So you know basically the glucose is the central carbon source for the central nervous system. This has something to do with the limitation of lipid being able to be transferred in any uh, composite compositional way in the form of tricyclycerol being the most um, easily accessible in terms of lipase-mediated fatty acid hydrolysis, the movement of the fatty acids through receptors uh, through, throughout the cytoplasm and into the carnitine palmitoyl transferase pathway, entering the mitochondria for beta oxidation, and then the production of NADH, FADH2, ultimately acetoacetate beta hydroxybutyrate being generated, and then all that reducing power in those two nucleotides, NADH and FADH2, for the electron transport chain, generating yeah, ATP. Now, that is, of course, a much higher uh, efficiency for carbon storage, that is tricyclycerol, but we don't store tricyclycerol, nor do we import any significant way for biofuel in the brain. There's a lot of interesting reasons for this in terms of fatty acid uh, as a fuel. One of the major issues is, of course, the auto-oxidation and then the buildup of reactive oxygen species, which would wreak havoc on the central nervous system. So it's likely that the evolution of glucose being the major fuel for the brain is related to this biochemical, biophysical phenomenon. Also, the transport requires, as you know, lipoproteins. And then, of course, moving through the blood-brain barrier, things we've talked about in the past. So remember that the brain itself is a, a very small representation of total body mass. It's only about 2% of the body mass. And the cortex, which of course is the most significant of the human brain, does oxidize and consume glucose at a tremendously high rate, even though again, it makes up a very small mass of the entire uh, organism. It, it can consume upwards of a half a microbole per minute per gram of tissue weight. Uh, and this has been determined via various means, but using the bold assay, but also using C13 and MR. So brain glucose, of course, is absolutely necessary for CNS function. It's involved in cell integrity. It's involved not only in neuronal action potential generation and neural transmittance and neurotransmitter synthesis and reuptake and reutilization, but also it's necessary simply for cell uh, integrity to maintain the cells and to avoid cellular fates going into uh, neurodegeneration, right? Uh, there is some autophagy that occurs in neurons. And of course, micro, um, 
microglia, which are not neurons, but which are basically the resident macrophages of the CNS, do uh, regulate some lipid metabolism back and forth to the neuron. And we talked about this. And now it's not necessarily fatty acids. It's more actually ketone bodies that can be generated, mobilized in and out of the glia to the neurons. I want to make sure that that's something that uh, we keep in mind. But uh, in general, when you get um, any kind of issue with ischemia in the brain, the central nervous system, you're inhibiting the transport, of course, of molecular oxygen and, of course, glucose. So this really decreases the ability of the brain to function, and that's how the brain uh, very early almost shut down once it becomes deprived of a very um, intense wealth of angiogenic spread within all the subnuclei of the CNS. So you've got that, then you've got the connection to the CNS via the nervous system and also chemically and cellularly through the circulation and chemically directly through the neuroendocrine system uh, and the adipokine system from the adipose as well. So you have a completely innervated network without, within the entire body. And so the entire range of activities of glucose utilization are constantly under surveillance in the human body. And we know the pancreas is involved. We know the liver is involved. We know about pancreas release of insulin or glucagon relative to high versus low levels of serum glucose. We've talked about this in general biochemistry. I just want to remind you of it. So any kind of hypoglycemia is immediately measured at multiple levels all from, out the per, from throughout the periphery in solid organs and also, of course, in the CNS. And likewise, hyperglycemia is, is well recognized in all of the CNS and PNS. And so this means that there are microvascular interactions that occur in terms of contraction and relaxation of those endothelial cells that are functioning to move and transport oxygen and glucose-rich blood into the CNS. And when there's any alteration of that or when there's any leakage and then there is an associated uh, buildup of a liquid mass outside of the um, subcortical regions of the brain. That all then involves a pressure deficit or a pressure concentration uh, deficit, which can lead to high levels of pressure in certain regions of the brain and lower pressure in others, that also will regulate and cause a uh, discontinuation of normal blood flow. So all of that can be linked to neuropathy, and that can be linked to the microvascular as well as the macrovascular regions throughout the body. And glucose is a major sensor there. So in order to regulate blood glucose, we know that the endocrine system is always functioning and that it's linked to the, to the ANS, that is the autonomic nervous system. And in particular, we're talking about all those neuronal nuclei that are sensitive to metabolic uh, alterations. And any of those fluctuations that involve, say, 
alteration of neuronal signaling are going to be both complex and because of the interlocution of the various uh, subnuclei, it's going to be a complicated system because ultimately you have to be able to recognize the secretion and the relative concentrations and the ratios of insulin to glucagon. And we know that those are produced respectively with the beta and the alpha pancreatic uh, Essner cells. You also have adrenaline and corticosteroids. And of course, those are produced in the adrenal medulla and within the adrenal cortex, respectively. And there are a whole host of other hormones involved in this glucose regulation, which again is intimately linked with molecular oxygen transport. All right, so you have the hypothalamic pituitary axis, and within that you have growth hormone regulation, you have ghrelin from the stomach, you have all the thyroid hormones such as T3 and T4, and these two control not only glucose levels, but also energy metabolism. So as a biochemical homeostatic mechanism, the overall bioenergetics of the system is going to be intimately linked to glucose. And that means that CNS is going to be uh, coordinating with the pancreatic alpha and beta cells, and that's going to modulate secretion and therefore autoregulation of plasma levels in association also with digestion, including the intestinal tract, all those signals that control metabolic function and glucose homeostasis. So you also have processes that control glucose levels in and out of all of the cardiac muscular system, as well as all the skeletal muscle. And this has to do again with adaptation and environment. So when you put this all together, it's clear that there is a stark associated network of glucose-sensing neurons in the CNS. And this has been studied for the, at least the last 60 to 70 years. And we know that there are, within the CNS, two general populations of neurons. Of course, they do primary functions as well. But those two populations that were described are glucose-excited versus, yep, glucose-inhibited neurons. So you have GEs and GIs, right? And they're found mainly in the hypothalamus, but also in the brainstem. Now, those neurons are absolutely essential for the control of all of that um, contrarian counter-regulatory system that involves hypo versus hyperglycemia because of the vagaries of the episodic diet and because of the slowness of the transport of glucose and oxygen relative to the requirement for the stimulation of glucose uptake in the central nervous system. And of course, in any accidental or episodic muscular activity. So you have all this activation controlled also by the sympathetic autonomic nervous system and the parasympathetic autonomic nervous system. And those are, of course, our abbreviated SANS and PANS, right, in neuroscience. So this physiological homeostasis then determines energy fluctuation because glucose is the major carbon source for bioenergetics in the CNS. 
And we talked a lot about how tag can be used in the skeletal muscle. We talked about how fatty acids are used to keep the heartbeat steady and constant and rhythmic. But in the brain, remember, fatty acid is excluded essentially. You do get ketone bodies during starvation, but glucose is the main frame, oxidizable carbon source. And that always has to be maintained, right? And so that means these pancreatic cells have to modulate their secretion and they have to self-regulate, right? And that means that they're in, te- they're in intimal contact with the intestinal tract and that there are relative levels of concentrations associated with signals, biochemical signals, that indicate various stages of metabolic sequence. Now, there are also physiological processes regulated by glucose that are more or less directly controlled via a nutrient sensing phenomena. And this includes probably some association with essential amino acids, essential nutrients such as vitamins, and of course, the most important essential fatty acids. I always bring that up because, not only because I'm a lipid biochemist, because it's just absolutely the truth. So again, uh, the elevated glucose levels, what they do is they activate the GE neurons, right? The excitable uh, glucose neurons. And, uh, And they produce an inhibitory effect on the response to hypoglycemia at the same time activating a response to hyperglycemia. And, they, and, the, and the way that that function is carried out is by stimulating gamma aminobutyric acid as the key neurotransmitter. And this, again, is part of that sensory appetitive reward pathway because it's involved in the ventromedial nucleus of, of course, the hypothalamus. That's the VMN. But also, we should include the nucleus of the solitary tract, it's the NTS. And then remember the anorexic neuropeptides and the arcuate nucleus of the hypothalamus. Now, we remember what those were, right? We remember the anorexic uh, one. Uh, remember that we have the POMC neurons, and we also have, uh, in contradiction to those, or contrary, I should really more precisely say, because we're in physiological networks here, the NPY agouti-related protein. So you have POMC and CART on one side, and then on the other side, you have the NPY AGRP neurons. These are all embedded within that VMN of the hypothalamus, but also in the solitary tract. All right, now, most GE neurons will trigger a mechanism associated with um, oxidative metabolism. And this is going to yield a concentration-mediated electron transport chain um, modifiable energy equivalents to make ATP, okay? And that's going to be linked, actually, to the um, plasma membrane-associated GLUT2 elevation. That's the glucose transporter, too. And that basically initiates a signal transduction cascade that results in an increase in intracellular ATP, both from glycolysis and, of course, from TCA cycle electron transport chain, OXFOS. And that's all directly linked because 
the regulation of that in the CNS, in those GE neurons, is exactly how it is in the pancreatic beta cell, where insulin secretion is, uh, of course, uh, directly related to the overall glucose level uh, and carriage within the uh, circulation. Okay, so they have a lot in common, right? The gene neurons and the beta cells of the pancreas have a lot in common in terms of regulation of uh, glucose sensing. Now, saying that, of course, there's always contrarians. Glucose, of course, is also able to induce changes in the excitatory activity of those neurons. And that's completely independent of bioenergetics. Although there are very, very likely important inveying network motifs that relate always to that bioenergetic phenomena. And of course, what's going to link this together are sodium-dependent glucose transporters. That's the SGLTs. But also, <laughs> because this is the um, reward pathway, I have to remind you that there's also a component of flavor involved, right? And so the sweet taste sensation of glucose is related because it's also stimulatory uh, in those GE um, neurons, okay? So now you get kind of like the whole picture here, right? And that, I, I think it putting it together like this is absolutely necessary. Now, I'll remind you about other components of the central nervous system involved, okay? In this whole process. Again, this is why you list authentic biochemistry. I don't leave out any of the specifics. And I think I do a good synthesis of it when I put these things together, hopefully in a logical manner, at least categorically logical. So remember the nucleus accumbens. That's a component of the ventral striatal division where you have circuit afferents and efferents that integrate via uniting and segregating into bundles of discrete neuronal ensembles. So you have these discernible nucleus accumbens type of regions, which have been looked in, in the animal, which have been looked at in the animal models. But then when you blow that up into human studies, the structural organization of those uh, nucleus accumbens and then linked afferents and efferents in, say, a rodent model is much more innervated and complex in the human system. So while the rodent system has very specific, well-defined subregions that can carry, the, that carry out uh, that neural stimulation through the NAC, through the uh, nucleus accumbens. And again, it's set up as neural bundles, a very discrete form, right? It's something quite different when you look at it in the human. In the human, you don't see any clear distinction for core subregions of the nucleus accumbens neural bundles. So they become more diffuse. And so, therefore, do the afferents and efferents feeding in and out, right? So that's a huge difference between the rodent model and the human model. And I bring this up all the time. And here's the differences at the level of structure-function relationship with the nucleus accumbens, okay? And all of the subnuclear regions that are linked to it, 
right? And that means that you get a much increased florid nature of the incentive cueing responses and behavioral alterations that you get from oxygen and glucose sensing in the human brain. That's why drugs uh, that alter dopaminergic pathways and uh, blow apart the regulation of the reward pathway can have tremendous negative effects on balance and on gait and on reasoning because they're going to be that's going to be affecting directly the neural bundles that are associated with glucose and oxygen transport you see and with that in mind what you get then is an imbalance you get motor skill uh, deficits and this is what happens with alcohol consumption but also with most uh drugs of um uh, that are that are taken illicitly, right? Drugs that get people high, basically, is what we're saying. So the major neuronal type of the nucleus accumbens is called the medium spiny neuron, or the MSN. I didn't make that up. That's what it's called in neuroscience. And that's actually about uh, over 90% of all the cellular mass in the NAC. So you get various phenotypes of these medium spiny neurons, right? And they can range all the way from um, more or less inhibitory. And they're going to, of course, use the inhibitory neurotransmitter, GABA. That's gamma butyric acid, remember. And it's in constant flux with what? Glutamate and glutamine, right? Remember that. But you also get mixed with the inhibitory excitatory, right? And so that means you're switching from GABAergic to glutaminergic. All within the nucleus accumbens neural system that is diffuse in humans, right? Besides all that, you get a ubiquitous distribution of neural terminals, and those express vesicular glutamate and GABA transporters, of course. And this is carried out through the striatum and the hippocampus, and indeed the thalamus and the cerebellar and cerebral cortices, which we've already talked about. Now, this suggests that there are likewise another differentiated uh, glutamate GABA phenotype within these downstream processing neural networks, right? And those are probably very common and not the exception, right? So you have a lot of glucose GABA MSNs and they exhibit then the, all the metabolic enzymes that are involved in altering the flux between those two neurotransmitters, such enzymes as uh, glutamate decarboxylase, right, GAD. And, and in fact, this has been picked up by doing uh, immunochemistry. So what you basically get is a co-expression modulation of neuropeptides like sepsis P, dinorphin, and cephalin, neurotensin. And this is going on at the same time that you're getting a flush of dopaminergic receptor-mediated uh, exposure to DR1, DR2, DR3. Those are the three major receptors in this region. Whereas DR1 and 2 form that heterodimer, right? And that is actually associated with aspartic acid uptake, whereas the dopaminergic input that drives all that receptor phenotype is coming from, yeah, the vent ventral tegmental area. And those are primarily glutamatergic inputs, and they go directly into the nucleus accumbens. 
And then they arrive mostly from cortical regions, right? So all of those innervations will terminate on those MSNs. They'll terminate on those medium spinal neurons in the nucleus accumbens, okay? And so what you get then is this highly complicated, striated, multisynaptic layering, right? And that's most likely what you're getting from the GABA, glutamatergic, spiny head neurons, right? And this then will lead to the full exposure to your dopaminergic pathway in the reward pathway, in the reward system, excuse me. So there's asymmetrical morphology throughout in the human brain, as opposed to what you can describe uh, in the, in the um, animal model. Okay, sorry for that phone call. Anyways, we're almost at the end, so it, good timing, I guess. And what we got now is um, I think probably one more lecture we're going to do because we're kind of in the middle of where I wanted to be with this glucose sensing. And we will finish one more lecture on the uh, reward pathway. And when we're done with that, uh, we will um, move on to the next target. Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Studios saying bye for now.